You're listening to the Unexpected World of Business podcast, brought to you by Henley Business School. So, welcome to the latest episode of the podcast. Regular listeners will note that I'm not Mark Swain, our usual host. I am Nicola Hine and I'm stepping in for today's episode. We will be talking about movies and movie sequels. Now, full disclosure, my film knowledge is a little bit limited, um, mainly to Bridget Jones 1, 2 and 3 and Hugh Grant films. Um, Today I'm joined by Professor Peter Miskell, Professor of International Business and Media History at Henley Business School, who fortunately does know a bit about the movie business. So, Peter, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. And um, could you start perhaps by giving us a quick overview of your research in this area? Uh, well, I've been, I've been working on film in some shape or form uh, for quite a long time. Um, and I started off with a strong interest in the kind of the social aspect of cinema going um, and was really interested in exploring the ways in which cinemas played a, a kind of an important role um, in, their, in their communities, um, particularly in the sort of the heyday of the Hollywood uh, era, the sort of the 1920s, 30s, 40s. Um, and over time, I've got increasingly interested in the kind of the business of movie making and particularly of movie distribution. Uh, and one of the questions I've been really interested in trying to explore is why it is that particularly the American film industry has been so successful at um, reaching global audiences um, and much more successful than any other national film industries have been at reaching international audiences. Um, and part of the, that story is really about the way in which those movies are distributed um, and the way in which the, the multinational firms, the big, we call them studios, uh, which makes us think that they're primarily about film production um, and a lot of my research is more interested in what they do by way of film distribution uh, because it's their control of distribution that is quite an important uh, factor behind the success of the, of, of, of the studios. Yeah. So we're going to explore a little bit today um, this idea that uh, we are seeing sort of an influx of uh, sequels or franchise um, films in particular and um, why that is um, why we're not seeing so many kind of original um, films anymore. Now, just taking a quick look at the all-time worldwide box office um, figures here. So obviously it's largely dominated by the likes of Marvel. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got Avengers Endgame at the top here now. Yeah. Um, looking into the top 10, really, in terms of original films, we've got Titanic's in there quite high, number three, I think, at the moment, um, and Avatar, which at the time was an original but now there are two more Avatar films yeah. penciled in yeah um, it's when, becoming a franchise absolutely yeah, yeah it's, uh, it's on its way so when when was it that this trend towards sequels actually began well sequels have been around almost as long as the film industry has been around. Uh, There's nothing particularly new about the idea of sequels as such. And in fact, if you go back to the 1930s, say, um, you can find, you know, so MGM Studios, um, you know, they had some success with uh, a whole series of films based around the character of Andy Hardy, for example. Uh, There was a a Thin Man series of films. Uh, You might think about the Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers musicals. They weren't technically sequels, but they were of a very clear uh, double act, a very clear formula there that was being made. So these kinds of movies have, have always been made. It was quite often the case in that period that the kind of the, the sequels were often sort of middle mid-budget movies. So the really high-profile 
big budget releases that would perhaps be the major hit films of the year would be more likely original but the studios were able to kind of churn out some of these films sometimes they were like B movies sometimes they were like mid budget movies occasionally they were high budget um, but it was seen as kind of more of a secondary thing that they did and, and generally speaking the rule of thumb with sequels for most of the industry's history uh, was that you know, you might want to cash in on a successful hit by making a follow-up, um, and if that makes money as well and does really well and is quite successful, you might make a third. But gradually speaking, what tends to happen is the economics don't last very long because the stars that are involved don't necessarily want to be associated with making the same film over and over again. They want to be associated with something new, something original. So, um, and also their bargaining position improves. So in order to commit to making a fourth, fifth or sixth movie, on, on a, they're, they're going to be demanding higher salaries. Uh, so the costs of production of these things gradually are going to go up over time. And the audiences for these things will gradually diminish. Uh, and it gets to the point after maybe the third or fourth iteration that even a successful series of sequels eventually gets to the point where it's just not making money anymore so so they disappear so what's changed and what's new is the idea that you can build a franchise that can really sustain itself over a significant period of time um, and some of the franchises I guess the first one that I would highlight as being really successful in this regard was probably the James Bond franchise in the 1960s uh, where you had a pre-existing series of novels that they could that they could base that upon. Um, but even then, that was a successful franchise in the 50, 60s and 70s, but it didn't really spawn that many obvious imitators. Um, it wasn't really until around, I'd say, about the year 2000, the turn of the millennium, um, you begin to see this trend becoming much more well, much more firmly established um, with the, sort of the, the revitalization of the Star Wars franchise around that time, the Harry Potter franchise kicking in around that time, the Matrix, I think, was around then, Lord of the Rings. And, and you saw a, a swathe of these movie franchises that were being developed, um, and you saw studios beginning to recognise that they can they can make these last, um, and rather than just bidding them as I don't know Police Academy Six or Jaws Four, uh, it's more around you know actually trying to build a narrative arc that that it's, can sustain itself. So you're not just replicating the original movie; you're actually trying to kind of tell a much bigger story over a much longer period of time. And I think that's what Marvel have, have really excelled at doing, is, is constructing long-term story arcs that spread across multiple movies, and indeed across different media as well, and integrating TV film. Um, and in some ways, what we're seeing in the, in the 2000s and, and onwards is the, the movie uh, studios beginning to behave a little bit more like the way that TV used to be in the 1960s or 70s, where, again, you'd have these long TV seasons or series, you know, you have series like MASH, perhaps, in the 1970s, um, or later on you'd get Friends or some of these kind of... And, and you could see how, you know, that model of, of telling a story over multiple episodes and building relationships, um, you know, it's, it's, it's the kind of thing that the movies are starting to do now within the way that they're constructing franchises. So, so the, the, one of the ways I tend to think about this is that if you're trying to create any kind of a, a hit product, 
there's a constant balancing act that's going on between novelty on the one hand and familiarity. Because presumably familiarity is an important part of why sequels are so successful, whether that's familiarity with a character or with the actor that plays them. So, um, you know, for James Bond, as you referred to, or the Marvel characters, um, that element of familiarity must be a, a big driver in those. Sure, yeah, there's often, they're often based on a, on a pre-existing story or, or character that, that audiences will already be familiar with. Um, and it's, it's a kind of a, a bit of a, I don't know, a conundrum, a paradox. I don't know, um, but it's a bit of a puzzle, I suppose, uh, that in the creative industries generally, when people are looking for, they're looking to buy, listen to music or buy a, a novel or a book or listen to um, or watch a movie, audiences, we're often told, crave novelty. They're looking for something interesting, something new. They don't want to just watch or read something that they've seen a hundred times before. Uh, if something is too too familiar, then it's dull and it's boring. Um, but if it's too novel, it's also a problem. If it's completely new and they've got audiences have got no means of really engaging with it or being able to understand the content that they're, that they're looking at, then that's a problem as well. So audiences like novelty, but they like novelty in a form that they can recognize and understand. Um, and I guess in the, it, for much of the 20th century, the way that, that the movie industry at least worked was that they were constantly looking to produce novelty. They're constantly churning out new movies, new types of uh, concepts, in, in the knowledge that some of them will succeed and some of them won't. And so long as enough of them are hits, that's fine. Uh, that, that's going to work. So they're, they're, they're constantly generating novelty, and then if they get a hit, they then need to try... The, the challenge for them then is to make those novel products familiar to audiences. They need to push them out, they need to market them, they need to distribute them. And that's why having control over distribution is really important, because you can... It's a way of enabling audiences to engage with this novel content. But it seems that what's happened more recently is that it's almost flipped around the other way. Um, studios know what audiences are familiar with, and rather than creating novelty, what they're looking to do is to find sources of novelty in, within what's already familiar. So it's it's taking the familiar and trying to find ways of making it novel. Giving people something new, but also guaranteeing that you're going to get them oh, giving, giving them something familiar, giving them something that's kind yeah. of old and existing, but finding new ways of doing it. Um, and, and therefore kind of telling new stories with the existing characters that you've already got. So that's that's kind of switched around um, a little bit. Um, so in the old model, it was premised really on this assumption of uncertainty. So you'd make a load of, or a, you know, a wide range of, of, of products, of novel products, but you don't know if they're going to be successful or not. And there's a there was a, it's a famous saying. Uh, it was a term coined by William Goldman, a famous Hollywood scriptwriter in the 1980s, who's, who said about Hollywood filmmaking, nobody knows anything. Um, and that's a phrase, it was a bit of a throwaway, throwaway line in a, in a book he wrote. Um, but it's kind of been picked up by economists who study the film industry and who study creative industries generally. And they've kind of talked about it and they argued that well actually the entire business model of the way not just Hollywood but actually creative industries more generally work is premised on this idea that nobody knows anything. Uh, you know in lots of industries there's asymmetry of knowledge and of information. So if you're, I don't know, if you're selling a second-hand car, the person that's selling the car knows a whole lot more about what its possible defects are than the person that's buying it. And they can exploit that, uh, that asymmetry of, of knowledge. But when, when you're producing and making and distributing movies, 
not, the audiences before they go to watch the movie don't know whether they like it or not they've got no means of really knowing in advance whether, whether they're going to enjoy it um, but also the people that are selling that are distributing they also don't know either they don't know they, they know what the movie looks like they've seen it but they don't necessarily know whether it's going to be a hit whether it's going to take off or whether it's going to leave audiences cold so there's there's uncertainty on both sides of the equation and that that means that there's there's an awful lot so the challenge for um, for the film industry has always been to try and what economists make a distinction between uncertainty and risk, and they need to try and convert that uncertainty into risk, so something that they can manage and control. Um, and in the in the in the studio era, and up until about the 1960s or, or thereabouts, uh, the way that they did this was by kind of constructing sort of broad portfolios of films, um, and they would know that within that portfolio, some of their products would likely be successful, they'd be hits, lots of them would fail. It didn't matter which succeeded, which didn't. They could they could balance the they they, they, they overall so long as their, their their slate as it were their production slate so long as that made money as a whole, um, they'd be they'd be okay. So that's how they kind of converted that uncertainty about whether an individual product is going to succeed or not into into risk that they could manage by by looking at it on a on a wider scale. The problem is that when cinema audiences went into decline hugely in the fifties and sixties. Um, people stopped going to the movies quite as regularly as they used to. Um, so it used to be that in the old portfolios that they construct, they'd have a few big budget movies that they kind of staked a huge um, amount of, um, of, their, of their reputations and of their, of, of, of their, of their revenues on. But then they, they could balance that with much, much larger numbers of mid-budget or low-budget movies uh, where they could be pretty sure that there was a reliable return that would, would, would come in. So, so it made it easier to kind of balance out this risk. But what happened in the 50s and 60s was that instead of going to the movies two or three times a week, audiences maybe would be going just once a month. They would only want to see the big hit films. They weren't so interested in watching the kind of the mid-budget or low-budget sort of B-movies. That was what TV was there for. Um, so it made that idea of balancing a balanced portfolio suddenly that doesn't work anymore because the only the only movies that anyone are going to is going to go and watch are the, are the big big budget hit films but you just don't know which ones are going to be hits so the risk environment of filmmaking shifts quite significantly so in the period in the really sort of 1970s 1980s is one where the industry's trying to come to terms with how to make this work and there's a whole load of other innovations going on in the industry at the same time you know, video technology coming in, there are ancillary streams of revenue that studios can access through cable TV, pay-per-view TV as well. So there's a whole other bunch of things that are going on. Um, but fundamentally, the industry is trying to figure out how do we manage risk and how do we control risk within within the sector? And it's really, I'd say, by the 19, end of the 90s, early 2000s, where they, they latch onto the kind of the franchise model as a way where they can really reliably know okay if we're going to if we're going to invest hundreds of millions of dollars in really big budget movies um, this is a formula that we can follow and we can be pretty sure that these kinds of movies are going to make money and what you can see if you if you look at the the patterns of um, the films that have been released and the revenues that they generate um, since about the year 2000, we can see a much higher proportion of sequels being produced. Those films are consistently more profitable than films that aren't sequels. 
Um, and the proportion of sequels therefore being made gets bigger and bigger, and the proportion of profits. So the industry is increasingly becoming reliant then on this kind of franchise model um, in order to, to, to sustain itself. So if we look at something like the Oscars or you know, the big industry award ceremonies, I mean, are we really celebrating great films now or are these more of a marketing opportunity for those kind of films that aren't perhaps part of a bigger franchise or? Yeah, I think, I mean, to some extent, kind of the Oscars have always been a bit, a bit of that. Uh, I think, yeah, historically the Oscars have been, I think originally they were an attempt for the industry to try and gain a bit more kudos. I think a lot of people in the 1920s kind of looked down a little bit on the film industry and saw it as being, but it was very new, it was quite, it hadn't been around for that long. Uh, it was seen as a bit of an upstart. And that's reflected, I think, in the kinds of movies that they, that they, uh, that they reward. Um, you know, it, it's often the case that it isn't necessarily the biggest um, box office grossing movies that win the Oscars. It can be the case, but they're generally movies that the, that the Academy members think of as being worthy. So in much the same way as perhaps advocates of the theatre may have looked down on the movies in the 1920s. Um, I think nowadays, of course, a lot of advocates of cinema, a lot of critics, um, who definitely do see and absolutely buy into the idea that of cinematic arts and of cinema as, a, as, a, as an important cultural art form, are a bit sniffy and look down a little bit on these franchise movies, seeing them as very formulaic. So how long can this trend for franchises for sequels continue, do you think? Oh, well, I, I, I would say that it, in its current form, I would date the, sort of the, the early 2000s, late 90s, early 2000s as a period when the franchise model seemed to really become the dominant form. Um, and I would say that by about 2005, 2006, there was, I wouldn't say unanimity, but there was a widespread view that this isn't going to last very much longer. Um, and by 2010, people were still saying that. And in 2015, people were still saying that. And here we are, we're in 2019, and people are still saying that. And it's been going pretty strong for about 20 years. Um, so I, I don't know. It's hard to imagine, isn't it, that an individual franchise can run indefinitely. Um, there's a question a lot. So long as new franchises can be developed, there's nothing to say that these, this model can't work for a very long time. Um, but there's another question then around, well, where are the new franchises going to come from? Um, and that's, you know, that, that's a, another challenge. And it might well be, you see, that the kind of the subscription model um, and the, you know, the fact that, you know, the Netflixes and the Amazons of this world are willing to kind of take a punt on you know, Stranger Things or, um, or, or content that might be a bit quirky or a bit edgy, and then sometimes these surprise hits will, will bubble up. Maybe we'll see more of the original content actually being developed on, in the form of, of either by TV producers or, or, or by some of these online um, subscription services. That might be where the, the novelty is coming from, um, as well as you know, traditionally, of course, novelists, writers. Uh, generating. Uh, it's, it's a lot less expensive to sit down and write a book than it is to make a movie. Uh, so there's generally a lot more new content and things. The other question then, of course, is that even if an individual franchise might, might work and might be able to survive for quite a long time, if the formula, if all franchises are kind of following a relatively similar type of formula, 
then you do begin to worry that, well, hang on a moment, how long can this can this go on for? There's nothing, I don't want to stake, uh, you know, I, I'm making predictions. As somebody that's kind of sees themselves as a historian, I'm always incredibly reluctant to make predictions. Um, but I would, what I would say is that I'm, I'm not prepared to predict that this idea of the franchise model is about to collapse under its own weight. Um, it, it's entirely conceivable that that mode of filmmaking um, could could sustain itself for, for for quite a long time. I'm not saying it definitely will, but but it's it's conceivable. So long as new ideas and new content is coming through into the system, so long it's perfectly possible that a franchise can can maintain that kind of freshness um, if it's constantly reinvigorating. You know, its creative personnel that are, that are involved in the making of it, uh, are constantly looking to kind of move with audience changing audience tastes. Um, it's, quite, it's quite possible that these things can, can sustain themselves for quite a long time. If you'd like to know more about some of the things that Peter's been talking about today, uh, click on the link below and that will take you through to a recent blog post Peter wrote for us uh, based on an academic paper. Well, thank you, Peter, for joining us. Um, That's okay, my thank pleasure. You, thank you all for listening. See you next time.